Welcome to Talkless Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talkless Water. I'm also the principal of Collaborative Water Resolution, which you can find at waterdisputes.org. In addition, I'm editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both publications are free. My guests today are Maria Richards and Joe Batier. Maria Richards is the Southern Methodist University Geothermal Laboratory Coordinator in the Huffington Department of Earth Sciences. Maria's research focus is geothermal resources and energy development, with a current concentration on the conversion of oil and gas fields into geothermal energy producers. Joe Batier is an exploration geoscientist with PetroLearn in Dallas. Joe has exploration experience in the Gulf Coast, East Texas, South Texas, Permian Basin, and in Alaska. Maria, Joe, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Thank you for inviting us, Todd. Yes, thank you. Very excited to be here. Great. Well, I've been looking forward to uh, this discussion uh, ever since, um, you know, we received uh, your your journal article. And we'll get to that here in a little while. But um, first, let's let's start out with your backgrounds in water. Maria, can you kind of tell us when you first became interested in water? Sure. I grew up with a family that was very focused on water. I was in the in Michigan, which is the Great Lake State. So I think from early on I loved water. My degree as a master's degree is in watershed management. And then I came to SMU and was able to get a job with Dave Blackwell in the SMU Geothermal Lab. And so then I started looking deeper at, into water with the geothermal resources. So where, where in Michigan? I grew up near the Detroit area in Farmington, Michigan, and then also in Adrian, Michigan, which is near Ann Arbor. Okay. I'm a Michigan State graduate. Uh, I went to the U of M. Ah, graduate school. So I don't know how this is going to go. Now nah, it's going to go well. That's great. That's great. Um, Joe, how about you? When did you first become interested in water? Yes, I I was thinking about this question because that's not a question you you think about every day, even though we need water every day to live. But some of the first thoughts that I had was that I grew up fishing and I enjoyed that aspect of water and starting in undergrad thinking about the way that water slowly breaks down rocks that was another aspect of how the interaction between the subsurface and water and how that ends up creating cool rock formations but then also with geothermal how we can produce energy from those water resources so I think it it's always been there. And one thing that I was just thinking about, I grew up in Illinois in a small town called Shanahan, which I forget which indigenous language it is, but it means where the waters meet because it's where the Illinois and the DuPage River meet and then eventually flow down into, into some other river. Oh, so, very interesting. It's always been a part of me, as it is all of us. <laughs> Great. Well, Maria, um, let's move to you next. And 
you know, I've got on here that I'd really like you to kind of tell us about geothermal energy and, and, you know, what advantage, uh, you know, it has as a power source over other power sources and just, um, you know, kind of thinking that, you know, this is really a, um, you know, water podcast. We don't normally get to talk too much about energy. And so that is, um, uh, you know, why I'd really kind of like to get the basics down first. Sure. Sense. So, in thinking about the basics, geothermal energy is a product from the earth giving off heat that goes all the way back from the core and the creation of earth, and it's you know slowly cooling down over billions and billions of years. And so, but right now, there's heat still being generated and coming to the surface. And so, we're Joe and I are an example of two people who look at the ability to tap into this energy and then combine it in a manner often with water, which is why it's on this podcast, that you can then take that water with heat in it and extract the heat from some of the heat from that water and then generate power from it. So within geothermal energy, there's the ability to use the heat directly, such as ground source heat pumps that many of your listeners might be familiar with. So you can heat it to um, heat or cool a building. You can also use it directly as a way to, from everything from like drying onions and, you know, produce to large scale district energy systems where you're able to still use that heat or cooling for a large um, business complex. And then there's the electricity side of it. And that's usually the most exciting to people to realize that we can produce clean, renewable energy from geothermal energy just that heat inside the earth. So Joe, uh, can you describe how, you know, we take the geothermal energy and produce power for the grid and, and, you know, the ways we can convert it to electricity? Yeah. When it comes to converting that to electricity. So as Maria was explaining, we are producing thermal energy. So that thermal energy you can use to heat your homes or or some other direct use where you need that heat. But you can also take that heat and convert that into mechanical energy, either letting that water flash to steam. That flashing process produces a, a, a mechanical energy that can then spin a turbine to then generate electricity. And then that electricity, you hook up to the grid and you can move it all about the country. If the water and that that, of course, requires the water to boil going from that liquid into that vapor. But if you've got lower temperature fluids or lower temperature water, you can also do that same process through what's called a binary geothermal power system. So you can take that heat exchange it with something that boils at a lower temperature, that being some type of refrigerant R134A or isopentane or isobutane, those boil at a much lower temperature. So you can exchange that heat, turn that that refrigerant into that steam and have that run and spin the turbine. And then that produces electricity and then you can put that on the grid. So Maria, is geothermal making a you know significant contribution at this point to American energy supplies and what do you think the potential is for geothermal in the future? So 
So geothermal energy, what's unique about the United States is that we produce the most geothermal power in the world. Most people think about Iceland or New Zealand or where there are lots of volcanoes. Um, but as a country, we produce more geothermal power than them. In terms of the United States, though, in our consumption, we actually are producing about let, you know, somewhere in the 1% of all total electricity is from geothermal power. So it's a very small um, power source at this current moment, but yet it's growing. And I think that's one reason why we did, you know, worked on the article and why Joe and I are continuing to research geothermal energy is because there's lots of opportunity to work with the oil and gas industry and their fields to develop geothermal power, as well as the fact that, you know, I mentioned direct use and that district energy systems and ground source heat pumps, rather than having to produce power, geothermal helps us reduce the need for that power. And so it's a way of saving energy without having to produce it. Huh. Joe, do you, you want to add something? Yeah, I think the the one thing that Maria said there that was really important to highlight is the fact that we can use that heat directly to reduce the amount of electricity we need. So the the significant contribution that geothermal can make to the total energy use is is not only the electricity that it can produce where we are we are the number one nation in the world producing that electricity but we can also significantly supply the heating that we need which means we don't need to produce additional electricity as we are growing in in all of our energy needs so I've, um, you know, I've been to Iceland and, you know, I saw lots of examples of geothermal energy, you know, being used there. But I mean, where are some places that that it would be easy to see, you know, geothermal in use here in the U.S. or even in Texas? So in the in California, a lot of the power for San Francisco and northern California comes from geothermal power. So that's, there's something called the geysers and the geysers field is the largest geothermal field in the world. And so you're going to find that Northern California, as well as Southern California has the hottest geothermal largest field with the Salton Sea area. And then there's Nevada and Utah, uh, Oregon, Idaho. Those are all states. So mainly Western United States is where it currently is. And that's why it's interesting for what, we've been researching to show that there's a lot of heat stored right here in Texas as well. Yeah. So what do you think is the reason we haven't, um, you know, really developed geothermal uh, as, as much as we could have before now? Is it just because we have so many other, you know, power sources that, that, uh, you know, we've, we've got to take advantage of, or there's just kind of a big, um, you know, industry focused on it and and all the the constituencies in place to uh, promote it and 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 make its uh, use more widespread one of the great things about united states is the fact that we don't pay very much for our energy you know most young people when they turn on that electrical switch you know when they turn on a light bulb they don't even know where that's coming or the hot water for their you know in their homes and and that's because we have very cheap power whereas countries that have higher cost tend to work 
more with renewables and geothermal energy is renewable. So it tends to be more expensive upfront in comparison to some of the oil and gas and, and coal and those you know sorts of products that we are so used to versus um, the desire to have a cleaner both atmosphere and water quality and, and energy source. Can you want to add something? Yeah, one more thing that I'd like to add here that has been a major focus recently in terms of the the research is that in many areas the geothermal resource is is not at the surface you don't physically know that it's there and that's the case for much of texas specifically is where the the data that we were looking at are 10 15000 feet underneath the subsurface where you start to get that geothermal resource that you can produce. And you don't really get that coming up to the surface in any any clear, obvious way. So where you've got the sun shining or the wind blowing and you can feel that resource and you you can think, what can I do with this? Unless you live near a hot spring or unless you live near Yellowstone or unless you know about about hot water, you don't really think about how can you turn that thing that is there into a usable end product, being electricity or heating for your home. That's exactly what I was thinking about was Montana and not not only Yellowstone, but uh, an area uh, of Montana that I spend time in that's got hot springs. And you know, just kind of like something I don't ever remember seeing here in Texas, although the, I don't know, maybe there are hot springs. Um, Keep in mind in Texas, there's, you know, mineral wells. Right. And that's because that was uh, hot springs. And then Waco, the, the name Waco for the city of Waco comes, I mean, that word means geysers. It used to be known as the city of geysers. And so a uh, hundred years ago, if we were there, you would. They literally had water streaming out of the ground. So, so now we've got we've got uh, some groundwater depletion in those areas, and right. and uh, so it's not obvious like it used to be. Correct. So, Maria, your um, you know your current uh, research focusing on conversion of oil and gas wells into geothermal thermal energy producers, you know, really caught my attention. So I, cause I was, you know, thinking about this issue of, well, you know, there are all these wells and, you know, the, uh, the oil and gas industry has leases, I guess, for those wells. And, you know, do they also have options to like try to, you know, turn them into geothermal energy wells, uh, and, you know, would they have to, how would they do that? Would they just have to make them deeper or, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what that might look like? Sure. The oil and gas industry overlaps with the geothermal industry in that we're both focused on what is below the ground and fairly, usually fairly deep below the ground, like thousands of feet below the ground. And then there's also the focus of reservoirs. The oil and gas industry is focused on finding and using the oil and gas reservoirs, whereas the geothermal industry is focused not on groundwater that you would drink, things that are much deeper that are here in Texas, especially are very heavily brined water. 
So Texas used to be an inland sea. And during that time when it was an inland sea that our formations were filling up with a salty brine water from that. And so that's the water that we're interested in tapping into. In Texas, then, the idea is that the oil and gas industry drill through these salt formations to, or salty formations to get to the oil and or gas or both that they're looking for. And there would be the ability to go back and perforate the zones that have the water to flow it. What I'm aware of is that it's not, it could sound easy, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And that the oil industry and geothermal industry are similar, but we're not the same. And so that's one of the difficulties. So are you, are you talking about the same well producing oil possibly, but also producing geothermal energy or is this, you know, you can only do one of these at a time and you've got to, you know, task it for that. Right now, the way the oil industry works, it would be difficult from my perspective to be tapping into one well that's already, you know, a strong flowing well that's got oil and gas. They're not going to want to take a successful well and start flowing water in it because it is a lot more difficult. Um, in terms of separating it at the surface, as well as the way they um, pay people for those different formations and which ones are producing the oil and or gas for royalties and payback. So the goal would be is to take a field that is at the end of its life and no longer producing the oil and gas like they want, rather than just shutting it in or abandoning it, to start looking at those wells and determining if it should be um, they should use those wells specifically, or if they need new casing and it's better to drill new wells. So there's a lot of additional reasons to either um, re-drill a well and or just drill fresh new wells that are have wider, wide diameters and fresh casing and things like that for all the parameters and environmental protection we need. So um, tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like Maybe there is some way that you could do both at the same time or some places maybe that they have wells that are, are configured such that you could you could develop both resources at the same time? Yes. One of the tests okay. of this went back in the um, early 2000s, was up in Wyoming, and they, were, they worked on a well that they converted, and there they, in the Casper area, and, and that well produced both oil and water and so they were to separate the two and so and the same thing is in north dakota so yes here in texas we could certainly do that but it's just not something that uh, most oil companies want to be combining they, they avoid water whereas you know if you want to be geothermal you've got to produce water yeah i also I mean, it seems to me that um you know if you're Somebody who has property in a, an area where, you know, the oil is, you know, kind of in, end of its life and, and those fields are, you know, pretty fully tapped, that this would be something you might be pretty excited about. Here's another, you know, potential future source of, of, of revenue is a landowner that, you know, a, a company could come in and, and take, you know, the, the infrastructure that was originally built for, for oil and gas development and use it for geothermal. Yes, that is exactly it. And so there's royalties not related to necessarily the amount of fluid flow, but more related to the amount of heat extracted. Huh. Joe, do you, you want to add something? 
I was just going to point out that what what Maria was saying, and when you think about an oil well, their main target is oil or gas. So a a gusher or a good oil well is is going to have a pretty low water cut. So that that water, and typically what we think about is extracting that heat from the water portion. So while there there are plenty of of examples of co-production as you're talking about and there are more of those opportunities especially in the end of life fields that Maria pointed out but as she was saying it is a it is one of those those things that if you have good wells and you're and you're really good at your job and getting really good oil and gas wells they probably aren't aren't producing the amount of water that you need to actually generate electricity for geothermal. Gotcha. Well, well, Joe, let's stay with you. Um, Why don't you tell us about your recent article, the article that you and Maria um, uh, prepared for the Texas Water Journal, Determining Geothermal Resources in Three Texas Counties. Um, You know, I'm interested in what you... uh, what you both set out to determine uh, in your research uh, that's described and, and what you found. Yeah. So to give the Cliff Notes version, and before I say that, I suggest everybody go out, find the article and read it because it is it is great research. Maria did great work with it. And I did a lot of a lot of work with it that Maria made better. So highlighting that. So definitely go find it and read it. But to give the Cliff Notes version, the primary goal of that work was to highlight what the geothermal resources were in three separate areas, that being kind of the tail end of the Permian Basin, co-located with university lands. This work was funded through it was it was a joint project that we did in collaboration with a group out of the University of Texas system. So also focusing on university lands. And that was the Crockett County portion. And then going south into Webb County, looking at the Eagleford Shale and all of the work that's that's actively being done in the Eagleford right now, and then moving further over to the east into the the kind of the true core of the Gulf Coast into Jackson County, basically looking at these three different areas, looking at how they all interplayed and interconnected, and then saying what potential areas are there for future geothermal exploration and and hopefully further development. And how can we use the new drilling and the new data to highlight those areas and see what kind of differences there were? And then the the second part of that, I think the important part is that as we get more data, one of the big conclusions is that as we get more data, we are seeing more potential resources in terms of geothermal resources. But those resources are, um, what's the right word? They are, uh, it's higher resolution, which ultimately drives more variability. So 
If you look at previous heat flow maps for the U.S., all developed by the most recent, there's an iteration of maps all from the SMU Geothermal Lab going back to 1992. And what you can see in those maps is a slow increase in resolution. So if you look at the 1992 map, you might find an area that looks great for geothermal. And you may say, okay, I could drill anywhere in this section. But now looking at the work that we've done, you may not be able to just find a super hot red spot on the map and drill a well. It requires more understanding than just that. I think that's one of the big main conclusions is that as we get more data, we want to analyze it so that we can understand the intricacies and the granularities and the variabilities within the resource beneath our feet. Maria, do you have anything you want to add to that? So I'm glad that Joe pointed out the fact that the results of what we did really almost increased the amount of unknown. And part of that is that there's new ways of calculating temperatures that are as deep as 10 kilometers. And one of the things we did as part of that was to start using more of the radiogenic heat production that's naturally occurring and understanding the sedimentary thickness. Um, and so by going back and looking at seismic data, which is now much more detailed than it was you know, even 10 years ago, um, and then some of the other type of like gamma rays and things like that, where you can understand the radiogenic heat production side of it, you combine those two and we have a better conversion of what's happening at the surface and then projecting it to deeper temperatures. And so we've increased the amount of, of heat in some places um, to more than what was originally predicted when we did the 2004 map, when Dave Blackwell and I did that map, of, um, which is the geothermal map of North America. And even the Google map that Joe was part of as a graduate student in 2011. And so it's exciting to continue to take research and expand it and, and, and use it. And so this is a good opportunity to show that. So I'm curious uh, why you picked Crockett, Jackson, and, and Webb counties. Are those kind of the areas that you, you think are maybe kind of the sweet spots in, in Texas for, for geothermal? So when it comes to why we picked those three specifically, I think it, as as I mentioned earlier, it was kind of a, a way to look at, at different areas for for various reasons and and for a kind of a, a look kind of across Texas. But to, to dig in a little bit more, Crockett County, really the, the hard focus there was the overlap with university lands. So we wanted to say large scale picture, what if oil and gas goes away? What other resources, subsurface, could university lands be developing leases for or developing some type of revenue stream on. Then with Webb County, there was the the um, the high amount of Eagle for data associated with it. It was kind of the the tail end of the Eagleford play. So that at least on the US side. So that was one aspect. There was a lot more data. So 
that was an opportunity to see just how does this additional data add into the the way the map is is being created and to your point there there was a there were a few different higher heat flow values that we wanted to explore a little bit more and then the other aspect was the 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 relation to Laredo and having this high population center that could utilize the amount of energy that if it's there could be produced. And then going into Jackson County, Jackson County was actually a little bit different because there were all of these counties along the the Gulf Coast that didn't really have a whole lot of new data. So there it was, how does this how is what what we're doing impact these changes when we don't really have a huge increase in data resolution, but instead we're looking at different ways of calculating the heat flow. So there I think we went from, I think it was about 150 data points up to maybe 300 data points. It was still really low resolution compared to Crockett or Webb that I think went from 500 data points up to 2,000 data points each. So there was a significantly lower amount of increased data in Jackson County. That's what I remember from it. Maria, what do you remember? Why did we choose those three? I think what you said was correct. Just basically, it was related to the UT Austin project, where the lands are, as well as wanting to work around appropriate cities that could use the heat as we found it for geothermal resources or direct energy. And then also wanting to better understand the Gulf Coast, which is why we chose Jackson and the fact that it was Central Gulf Coast. Gotcha. So uh, what do you think, uh, Joe, in terms of uh, what you've found that the, you know, the potential is for geothermal power in Texas? And, and, you know, uh, Maria, please weigh in on this. You know, this is kind of the central question, you know, what's the potential for really to, to make up a, a big chunk of our energy supply and, and what kind of time frame uh, would we be looking at if uh, the state really, um, you know, put the, the, the money and effort into uh, geothermal energy? Maria, do you want to go first? No, go ahead, Joe. Okay. Uh, so there's there's a few different aspects that I think are are important to point out here. One, the resource is is there. I think we identified that that there are areas that have that that hot water that we think can be produced. The and and this is really this work is confirmation of that using these new tools and and new new workflows, but even going back to 2011, I think, Marie, you can correct me, for the I-35 report, we've we've known that this resource is here. It's really just a matter of figuring out the details on how do you drill the wells, how do you produce that, and how do you do all of that economically and build the business model behind it. And the one thing I, I want to highlight here is that the our research continues to show that this resource is there. 
And now you're starting to see the business behind it with multiple different startups starting in Houston, starting in that energy capital of the world. And then you're starting to see multiple different projects. And now, most recently, Texas having a lease sale that includes geothermal leases that show that now they're starting to build out this geothermal ecosystem that will hopefully have a, a project online or at least geothermal wells being drilled next year is what I would hope for. Maria, you want to yep. add? In addition, what I think, you know, we have focused on producing water. And I it, this might be a good point to highlight the fact that the industry is changing. And that's one reason why I think the oil and gas industry is looking at geothermal power because um, they have changed. They have new drilling techniques and new ways with their lateral and horizontal drilling to follow heat sources that weren't there before, as well as they can make a well rather than just being vertical and, you know, let's say 8,000 feet, they can now go horizontally a mile. And so that changes how you extract heat from the ground. And there's a lot more research now on developing a single borehole for geothermal powers rather than needing to produce water. You know, at the surface, it comes out and then reinject it. People are looking into using a single borehole where you would have something like a giant closed loop system for even a, a home now as underground for generating power. So the so the types of wells are changing, but also the drilling and the capacity of and how we drill is changing. And all of those are going to be impacting both the oil and gas industry as well as the geothermal industry for the power side of it. But this but I, I'm just trying to to make sure that I understand kind of the potential you you're you're saying that this is a significant potential um source of, of uh, future energy for the state, um, not just kind of a, uh, a, a minor player potentially, but, but something pretty significant in the long term. Yes. In fact, just in, in terms of how much heat is there, the, underneath like all of not just Texas, but under the United States, there's more power, more heat waiting to be converted to power than as if we were to take all the power we produce today and produce it for another hundred years, it's just you know sitting there waiting to be you know tapped into, mm. and so there's a lot of heat that's just being um, evaporated with you know at the surface. But also the interesting thing about Texas is that all these sedimentary um, basins that we have, those actually act as a blanket. And they're helping to keep the heat in. And that's one reason why Texas is an important state. And because we have hotter formations than other states that don't have the sedimentary formations. Well, it's it's almost like the, uh, you know, Texas being the power, you know, or superpower of power. Right. <laughs> Whatever you want to say for the future, oil, gas, uh, wind, solar, geothermal. Exactly. Um, it's, you know, that story uh, just seems to keep expanding. Um, and, uh, uh, makes me think, well, you know, uh, if we were able to produce a lot of electricity with geothermal, um, I guess we'd still have to use it here unless we were interconnected with, um, uh, grids and other, other parts of the country, like we're not 
at the present. And the goal for geothermal energy is it's a it can be a distributed power because you're working on using resources that are below ground and you can tap into them by using a well or drilling a well. Um, those allow you to use them more on site. So rather than having to build the big power grids like we did with the wind industry, the goal would be is to use it on site more locally. So, but something that just came to my mind that I think might be of interest to you and your listeners is the fact that we've also been talking about heat a lot with this and power. But Joe and I did a, a project in East Texas where we were looking at taking the geothermal fluids and that heat and using absorption type chillers to create super cold water that would then be stored during the day, or well, actually at night. And then in the day when we needed um, to have a more efficiency of a natural gas plant, the water was going to be used to cool the inlet temperature. As it turns out that most natural gas plants, they start losing efficiency somewhere around like 60 degrees to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And so if you think about Texas, most of our days, we are above 60 degrees in the middle of the day. And so if we could use geothermal to cool water and then make our our natural gas plants more energy efficient, that's a win-win for two industries, as well as everybody in the area. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a unique, uh, um, you know, uh, way to think about that. I hadn't thought of before, for sure. Um, You know, using geothermal for some other um, way to make, uh, I guess, natural gas use more efficient. Uh, Is there so are there any, uh, you know, projects kind of exploring that use at this point or or do you see that, you know, elsewhere in the United States being done? So there's not. Not that I am aware of. That doesn't mean it's not happening. But I'm also um, been working with Ken Wiesian, who is out of the Bureau of Economic Geology. And they're starting to look at coal plants and how can we start converting coal plants and using that infrastructure as the foundation of a geothermal power. And so it's kind of like a, a multi-year or many-year conversion from coal to geothermal power. And a lot of the coal plants have oil and gas wells on their property as well. So it's a, a way of, once again, combining resources to make it efficient and as well as make it more seamless in terms of how do we convert from one to the other. Joe, do you, you want to add anything here? The only thing that I'll add there is a little anecdote. So I used to go camping at Fairfield Lake State Park. And Fairfield Lake was always a, it was essentially a cooling pond for a an old coal-fired power plant. And there was a period where I, I think that plant has been decommissioned, but so the the lake itself is no longer heated, no longer, and it, it had a, a period of time where it had tilapia growing in it. And they they were able to live year round in this lake because of the cooling aspect, and because it was artificially warmer than than typical Texas summers, that is, or not summers, winters, and that is one of those aspects where you can see a cascaded use. If we could go back into those coal plants, repurpose them for geothermal, use that lake for cooling, maybe you could also have that that fishing or 
agriculture industry behind it. Another another unique application. Uh, Maria, what you know, we're this podcast is all about water, of course. So um, you know, tell us a little bit more about the importance of water in the geothermal power equation. Well, we've obviously mentioned water and or brine many times. So right now the traditional geothermal industry for power is built on on water. As we move forward, I think that that's going to be changing, especially as we get to the ability to use one single borehole. That's definitely helpful because we're not going to be, um, you know, using as we won't be using water most likely for that exchange of heat. Uh, it'll be a different medium. But the other thing is, is that the industry, as it has already transitioned to binary type power plants, those binary technologies are bringing water or brine to the surface it's actually being used to heat a secondary fluid that then flashes the steam. And then that water's just being injected. But so the water pretty much never sees in any atmospheric you know, air. It's all kept inside of pipes. And by doing that, the geothermal industry is already very much a conservation of water. And so mm-hmm. we realize that, you know, we... Um, you know, water is very important. Geothermal is a green, renewable energy and clean. You know, we talk about that. Um, so for us, making sure that the water component is part of that cycle is very, very important to us as an industry. Well, uh, Joe, you want to add anything to that? Nope. I think Maria said it perfectly. Nothing else. Nothing else there to, to comment on. All right. Well, this is our last question. It's a question for both of you. Um, And Maria, if you want to go first, uh, please tell us how our listeners can find out more about your work. So I work at SMU in the Geothermal Laboratory. I'm within the Department of Earth Sciences. And so someone could start out by typing in Maria and Geothermal. They could go to SMU and they could. um, So there's lots of information on our website. But I also wanted for listeners who are into data and understanding some of the bigger pictures of geothermal energy, uh, there's also something called the Geothermal Data Repository, the GDR. And and that's a government website um, that I think has a lot of newer research that where every single group that has a Department of Energy grant has to put the data onto there. So there's a lot of data that people can get access to. And the other neat thing about um, even our website is that we have the National Geothermal Database System. We're one of the nodes, and that gives people the ability to see the historic aspects of the geothermal community and what we, and magazines and books and articles and things like that, too. Great. Joe, how about you? Yes. Well, I just wanted to thank you, Todd, for having us on your show today. Um, if anybody wants to find out more about me or or what I'm up to, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search Joseph Batir. And one more thing, I'll give a shameless plug. I have my own podcast. It's called Energy Transition Solutions. It is all about the energy transition. So 
I, I think your viewers will understand that water is going to be a big question mark and a big topic in the energy transition. So I do have people on that talk about carbon credits and eco credits and all sorts of energy. And hopefully we'll be having more people talking about water and water aspects to the energy transition as well. So you can find me on LinkedIn and find all that information on there. And Joe is great on LinkedIn. For those who are on social media, Joe is, a, <laughs> is known in the geothermal community as being one of our leaders. So Great. Great. And, uh, um, you know, just to kind of follow up with what you're saying there, Joe, you can't talk enough about water. No one can do that. And so um, I'm all for more talk about water. And um, today, though, it was great to talk about energy for a change uh, and a little water, but mostly energy, which was all you know very new and interesting to me. So, Maria, Joe, thank you for joining us today. Todd, you're very much welcome. Thank you for this yes. opportunity. Thank you, Todd. Oh, well, you're, you're very welcome. This has been Talkless Water. My guests today were Maria Richards and Joe Batir. Maria Richards is the Southern Methodist University Geothermal Laboratory Coordinator in the Huffington Department of Earth Sciences. Joe Batir is an exploration geoscientist with PetroLearn in Dallas. I also want to thank you, the listener, for spending your valuable time on this podcast today. And finally, I want to give a big thank you to Anna Huff at the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University for getting each episode of Talkless Water ready to flow. My name is Todd Bottler. Let's talk water again soon.